Well, it's an exciting day with the uh, church membership. Uh, it's always exciting, and then ex always exciting to start a new book uh, uh, to, to preach through. So virtually the calendar year will be in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so looking forward to that. Uh, Mark being the second in the chronological order of the canon that we have, uh, the four Gospels, right? We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So in terms of order that we hold in our Bibles, it's the second. Uh, most likely, Mark is actually the first gospel written, though, uh, and it's also the shortest gospel. Uh, let me give you a couple of reasons why uh, Mark would be a great book for us to go through uh, together as a congregation. Uh, there's two main reasons. Uh, we could probably think of more. But one is that uh, just to have a healthy, balanced diet of Scripture so if you notice, if you've been around Crossway, we like to bounce around both the Old Testament and New Testament, making sure we're getting a balanced diet that way, but then also different types of writing, different genres in Scripture. So it, just to go back a couple years ago, we were in Old Testament wisdom literature, preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, then we moved forward into the New Testament and did a New Testament letter by the Gospel, or by John, the uh, first John. And then we did New Testament apocalyptic literature. So it, still a New Testament, but a different type of literature, apocalyptic, revelation. Then we went back to the Old Testament and did Old Testament narrative going through the, the book of Judges. And then we went to the New Testament, uh, once again, Colossians, uh, which is a letter. Uh, and now we'll be in the New Testament doing Gospels. Uh, Gospels is, is a fairly straightforward literature, so that's, that's kind of nice. Uh, Ecclesiastes, if you remember, that one's pretty messy. Uh, it's actually my favorite book that we've preached through. Uh, Revelation is also can be challenging. That was my second favorite book. So those are the, the more challenging ones. This is a little bit more straightforward, right? Uh, you have story, right? A lot of, a lot of the Gospel is story. And so it's going to follow a narrative arc, and you're going to have a, a setting and a tension and a climax, a resolution and a new setting, right? So a lot of it is story. Uh, but you also have uh, parables, which are sort of a story alongside of a story. The parables are always trying to answer some sort of a tension in the, in the air, either in the, in the air of the actual narrative story or as the author is telling the story. But there's some sort of a question in the air that, as the reader, it needs to be resolved, and it's going to be resolved with a parable, with a story. That's sort of, it's meant to kind of force you to stop and think, figure that out, and then, ah, aha, that's how the tension is solved. So you have story, then you have parables. You also have uh, discourse. So not so much in Mark. Mark does have some discourse, but you have to approach that literature different. Uh, so a book like Matthew or Luke or especially John, you have just longer discourses, right? Uh, take the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters, five, chapter 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew. And you have to approach that uh, literature a little bit different than you do a story, a little bit more like a letter. So you have these different types of literature all within the Gospels. And in particular, Matthew has a little bit of his own flavor with... Uh, that some of the technical names that people use is interpolation or inter, intercalation, that people use both those terms, or insertion, or the easiest way to say it is Mark and Sandwich. Uh, Mark in particular has these, the, the way he writes with sandwiches a lot in his books, or in his book here. So sometimes it's a story within a story, and we'll see in chapter 5, the woman who has an issue with blood. Inserted in that narrative is Jairus, no, I'm sorry, Jairus' daughter, who is 12, who's dying, inserted right in the middle of that story, is a woman who's had an issue of blood for 12 years. 
And so you have a narrative within a narrative, and it's like a sandwich. So it goes, the woman with the blood, uh, or I'm sorry, Jairus' daughter, woman with the blood, and then Jairus' daughter again. Uh, or it, he has these larger sandwiches where it's actual three scenes. You might have the, Jesus curses the fig tree, then he cleanses the temple, and then the fig tree ha has no fruit. Right? He, he, he's got this sandwich, and it, so it's a unique way of, of, of writing, uh, which is very enjoyable. So Mark just has these cool flavors to it, which we'll see as we go through it. Uh, so that's just the first reason, a, a healthy, balanced diet of Scripture. Uh, we don't want to become people that only eat vegetables or only eat eggs. That's, that's not good, nutritious for us. We want a well-balanced diet. Uh, second reason is uh, I, I once heard a, a wise pastor uh, argue that you should preach through a gospel every four years. Uh, we haven't done that. Uh, it's been a little bit longer than that for us, but... Uh, I, I never actually heard his reasoning, and I heard it secondhand. Uh, so, you know, maybe the story changed. I don't know. But uh, as, as you think about it, uh, you know, all of the Old Testament is pointing forward, preparing us for the coming of Jesus, right? The, the rebuilding of God's kingdom through the work of the Son. So all the Old Testament is giving pictures and preparation for the coming of the work of Christ. And we long for the Christ to come as you're reading the Old Testament. The, the, the rest of the New Testament after the Gospels is looking back. What does it look like to live in light of the fact that Jesus brought the kingdom of God and we're still on our way to the, uh, the consummation of the kingdom? What does it look like to live now on earth in light of that and in light of Jesus' uh, second coming, right? Well, right in the Gospels, we actually get to see Jesus right up close and personal. And I think that's part of the argument is there's something unique and sweet for the believer to see Jesus up close and personal. And sort of Mark's sort of way of uh, sort of to see the true Jesus. We sometimes either by choice or sometimes by uh, just fear and circumstances, we tend to paint a Jesus that's actually different than the scriptures. And one of the most comforting things for the soul, one of the most calming things for the soul, when life is hard, when you feel abandoned, when you're being mistreated, that's actually see the true Jesus up close and personal. The one who was mistreated, the one who was abandoned, the one who was denied by his closest friends, the one who was betrayed by one who walked with him, who, the one who Jesus washed his feet and he still betrayed him. It's to know that Jesus, that when, when you're suffering hardship or when you're, when you're mistreated by a family member for following Jesus, God hasn't forgotten you. Something's not wrong. That's actually the way of the kingdom. And so it brings the real Jesus, the true Jesus, close and to comfort us. But at other times, uh, when life is comfortable, life is safe, your career's going good, your bank account's doing well, you're well-respected, your family likes you, everything's going great, sometimes the true Jesus scares us a little bit. Because truth be told, deep down, we're a little bit nervous that he might come in and disrupt that. And we don't want that. So we'd rather paint to Jesus that his highest priority is our safety and comfort and prosperity. That's the Jesus we really want deep down, is that Jesus that keeps us safe. And Mark will have none of it. That's not the true Jesus. That's not the way of the kingdom. Mark wants to bring the true Jesus before us and say, no, no, no. The true way of Jesus is different than your heart 
naturally desires. Let me show you something that will actually set you free from the ways of the world. Pursuing that will enslave you, but pursuing the true Jesus will set you free. And so that, that's what Mark wants to do. Uh, we always, as we start a new book, we always kind of do a quick overview. Uh, and I, I say quick, but it's supposed to be quick. It will be kind of quick. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a, a little uh, overhead here and a, qu- a quick story. This is not going to be quick if I tell stories all, all the way through. But uh, I had a professor once who, who would, uh, he always had these pictures behind, and they never went with his talks at all. And uh, I took all the classes I could with the, with the guy. He was, he was old and had done a lot of ministry, so I just wanted to hear him talk. But uh, he'd, he'd all of a sudden turn around and he'd be like, hey, what happened there? And then he'd like turn to a different picture, and you're like, that, that still doesn't go with anything we were talking about. So I think he was just messing with us. Hopefully it'll, it'll make more sense as we go through it, though. So what we want to do is just get a main picture of uh, Mark. What is he doing? What is his point? What is his goal? Uh, what, is, what is he doing in this book? Because every book of the Bible has a main theme. If you think of the scriptures as uh, a house, you know, a house, uh, each room has its own unique flavor to it, or your own unique purpose, right? You don't cook your meals in the bathroom, or at least... If I come over to your house, don't tell me you made it in your bathroom, right? It's just, you, you, you walk into the kitchen and you know it's the kitchen because the sink's there and the microwave's there, the stove's there. It's the kitchen. There's a new, unique purpose to it. And when you're in the living room, it's different, right? All, all of them are unique and they're all helpful and useful, but all together they make the house. And the Bible has 66 different books written by over 40 different authors. And they're all together. They have the main picture of God rebuilding his kingdom through the work of the Son. Yet they all have their unique flavor. Or if you think of big orchestra, they all have their own unique instrument, playing their own unique note, adding to that beautiful story. And so we want to know what is Mark's emphasis that he's adding to the story? What is his main point? Uh, The way... I like to do it as this formula, looking for these A's here. We want to know the author and the audience. It's the left and the right there. The author and the audience. That will give us the occasion of the book. When is the author writing? How does he know the, uh, how does he know the audience? What's going on in the audience's life? What are they thinking? And why, is he, why did he pick up his pen or quill to write this book, right? So the author and the audience, plus the argument of the passage, or uh, of the book. The argument of the book, what I mean by that is, is, is actually what does the text actually say? So that would be looking at things like rep, uh, repetition of themes or words. It would be uh, the, the top and the tail, the beginning of the book and the end of the book. Because sometimes the book starts out bad and it ends good, like the book of Ruth. Sometimes it starts out good and it ends bad, like the book of Judges. And oftentimes an author, just like we write, you'll use a, a few words up front or say a theme up front and you'll wrap it up as you close the book or the letter the same way. You'll use similar language. And that will give us a lot of direction in terms of his theme, the top and the tail. Uh, Or you can think of structure, the way the author structures the book, how he organizes it, or the tone of the book. Uh, So we want to look at those sort of things. The author and the audience, plus the argument of the book, gives us the aim of the book, the goal of the book. What is the author trying to do uh, for the audience? Or how does he want the audience to respond? Now that one is very important. Because until we get the aim of the book, all everything else is mostly just data, right? So we don't want to just say, oh, Mark is about this. Great. What is Mark trying to do with that? What is he trying to do with that main theme? How does he want us as a people to respond and walk with God? What does that look like? So we're going to try to do that, uh, work through uh, these points 
this morning. So the first one being uh, the author. Uh, most likely, uh, historically, it's thought to be John Mark. A, the author never names himself. Uh, historically, from the early church, it's been believed that it's John Mark. Uh, John Mark, uh, if you, we actually first meet him in the book of Acts, um, where Peter gets re released from jail, you might remember, in Acts chapter 12. And uh, this is where the angel comes to him in the middle of the night, takes the shackles off, he goes past the guards, you know. And you remember where he goes to a house, it's to John Mark's mom's house. And the church is gathered up top. And so, so Mark knew the apostles. So he was, uh, ended up being a co-laborer with Paul, we learned that in uh, Colossians, and a co-laborer with Peter. And if, if it is indeed this John Mark, uh, he was also a relative of Barnabas. Uh, and you remember actually him and Paul, uh, Barnabas and Paul had a rift because of John Mark, because uh, John Mark had deserted them in the book of Acts. But eventually, uh, John, uh, Paul ends his final letter saying, bring, jo bring John Mark with, me, with you because he's useful to me. Uh, so that, that would be John Mark. There is one place where possibly Mark is telling the audience who he is, and that's at the end of the book. Uh, if, if you want to look at it, it's chapter 14, verses 50 to 51 or 51 to 52, uh, he doesn't name himself, but here uh, at the betrayal and the den denial of Jesus, uh, when all the disciples fled, verse 51, we have this young man looking on from afar. And it says, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. That's all we know about this young man is that he's now running through the field naked. And, you know, possibly it's sort of like Mark's way of kind of naming himself, where if you were one of the first audience, you'd be reading it, Mark's sitting right here, and you'd be like, man, ran, ran, ran naked, running, Mark. <laughs> we know who this guy is, you know? Now, that might not be accurate, we don't know, but many, many think that that is probably uh, John Mark, the author of the book. Uh, now, what about the audience? Uh, the audience... Uh, historically, uh, has has been thought to be the Christians in Rome, or at least, bare minimum, at least the Christians in Rome. Uh, Mark, uh, many think that uh, he ran a lot with Peter and learned a lot from Peter and is then um, writing these uh, the gospel, sort of as through. Peter's actually speaking through Mark, you might say, in, so, in many ways. Uh, Peter, historically, had made it to Rome uh, for a season, and as the Christians in Rome were being persecuted, it's, uh, some believe that Mark is then writing to uh, the church in that situation. Now, some of the arguments for that is that as Mark dis uh, states certain Jewish customs or uses certain Aramaic phrases that the the people living in Rome might not know, he, he qualifies or he describes them. So you get to chapter 5 and he says, uh, when Jesus says, Talitha kumi, which is Aramaic, it says, he says, which means little girl arise. Or when he talks about Golgotha, he says, well, that means the place of the skull. Or Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, Jesus from the cross, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or in chapter 7, when he's uh, talking about the, uh, the religious leaders don't wash their hands, and then he has this parenthetical, well, the reason why they didn't wash their hands is da 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 So he's explaining these things, uh, so that some of the argument is, well, the, the Christians in Rome wouldn't know those things if he didn't explain them. 
Now, that could be true. I think there's a lot of argument to say that it's not only the Christians in Rome, but to the Christians abroad, the church widely. And, you know, they had a system. We see this in the, the book of Colossians at, as Paul signs off his letter. He says, you know, see that this church or this, this letter that I've written is read to the church in Laodicea. And also see that you read the letter that I wrote to them. They had this system throughout the ancient world of passing these letters around. So I think there's a very strong argument to assume that as Mark penned his letter, he's not assuming that it would just be written to the Roman Christians, but to the church abroad. And they were meant, it's meant to be distributed. So then we have to ask, what was this, the church, the early church, what was their experience? And if you were here for the Revelation series, that, that is very helpful. Because we see in Revelation that the early church, some of them were being persecuted, like the church in Smyrna, the church in Philadelphia, two out of the seven, and the other five were not being persecuted. They were complacent. Uh, some of them were wealthy. They had lost their first love. Some of them were lukewarm. So you have these, these two kind of sides. One, one is a, a church that's hurting, and you have other churches that are complacent. Right, there's the that's the, seems to be the, the two categories, or I just have an acronym there. You have some churches in, in this, the ancient world there that were complacent, some that were hurting, some were that were underprivileged, some were that were rich, like the church in Corinth, some that were comfortable, some that were hunted. You have this range of experiences for uh, the church, uh, which means then this, this book is meant to have a little bit different uh, aim as, as it lands on the church, which we'll get to as we get to the aim. That's our author and our audience. Mark being one who knew, possibly was actually there at when Jesus was betrayed, watched from afar, but at very least knew the apostles. All right, let's talk about the argument then. And we'll, before I sum everything up, we'll kind of walk through a couple different categories. Um, we'll, we'll kind of, oh, I, I guess... The top and tail piece, uh, which Shar read, if you picked up the theme, you heard the Son of God. This is right out of the gates. Mark says, I'm, he tells us exactly what he's going to be writing about. Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Now, Son of God, when you hear Son, you should hear King. Uh, not just like a biological like Son like that, like a relationship, but actually kingship. This is out of Psalm 2. The Son of God is the one who's King. He reigns over all things. Uh, so this, Jesus is the king. Uh, the other thing to, to notice at the top and the tail that's important, uh, if, you, if you notice at Jesus' baptism when the Father pronounces Jesus as my beloved son, you see that heaven is torn open and God speaks. Well, at the end of the book, uh, Mark uses the same word uh, as, as Jesus is crucified when he breathes his last the curtain in the temple is torn apart. Now, Mark's the only gospel writer to use that language in both the opening and the end of the book. So he's intentionally, it's almost as if to say, God is coming by ripping open the heavens in the, in the arrival of Jesus. And when the temple is, uh, the curtain is torn, it's, it's, it's either this, this judgment, which we'll see next week, the judgment on the temple system, not the system itself, as if the system's bad, but the way they're in, using the system, that that is being judged, but also that the way to God is being opened. So God, God dwelling in the heavens opens up at the beginning, and then our way into God's presence uh, is opened at the end. And that's the mission that Jesus is on. Uh, 
the book itself uh, can be divided into either two, two sections or three. The two are connected in this first one. Uh, and a couple ways to see this. Uh, first of all, Mark is in an extreme hurry, you might say, at the beginning. The first 11 chapters, he uses this word immediately. And right out of the gates, if you just look in chapter 1, I mean, you'll see it there. First time he uses it, verse 10. Immediately he saw the heavens open. Uh, verse 12, the spirit immediately drove him. Verse 18, and immediately they left their nets. Verse 21, and immediately on the Sabbath. Mark is just in a hurry through the whole first 11 chapters. Immediately, immediately. He's the unique in this uh, as an author. And then right when he gets to... 11 verse 3 is the last time, and then he slows down. So 38 of the 42 times that that word immediately is used is all in the first 11 chapters. Now the other thing about the first 11 chapters is what Jesus um, does uniquely in Mark is he never actually goes to Jerusalem until chapter 11. So the book's introduced that God is coming to his temple, which we'll see next week. God is going to his temple, but yet... Jesus never actually goes to the temple until chapter 11. He's hanging out all up north around the Galilee until he gets near the chap- end of chapter 11 when he, goes on, he starts making his way, and some call it the way section. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and finally we get it in chapter 11, and everything st- slows down. He's in Jerusalem at the temple. We'll keep moving on as we can look at those three sections Uh, The first section, uh, running through the first eight chapters and the the half of the eighth chapter, um, is about the identity of Jesus. Who is the Son of God? The second one, then, is the way of the king. Or what does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? And then the third being the work of the king. He actually now performs the work of the king. Or another way to think about this is the first section is about the who Jesus is, The last section is about how he ushers in his kingdom, how he inaugurates the kingdom, and the middle one tells us why. Why does does he bring in the kingdom that way? Because there's something about the nature of the way of the kingdom, which we'll get to. Let's just unpack each of these a little bit more. How does Jesus, we're just going to think about themes now, how the identity of Jesus is brought forward uh, in this first section uh, first, we see this very strong theme of the supreme authority of Jesus or the sovereign authority of Jesus. Even if you just were to scroll through the first several chapters, you're just going to see this um, compiling of miracles that Jesus does. First, he, he, he comes on the scene. He first proclaims the first words out of Jesus' mouth in verse 14, that the kingdom of God is at hand because he's the king. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news, right? And then we're going to watch. What does it mean for the king to be here? Who is this king? Well, the king, is the, the, the king is the one who has authority over demons. The king is the one who has authority over sickness and disease and uh, the paralyzed. Jesus, this king, is the one who has authority to forgive sins. This is the king who has authority over the wind and the waves. This is the king who has authority over death. This is the king who has authority to, to multiply bread. And so we just have all this, this whole compressed section of miracle after miracle showing the sovereign authority, the kingly authority of Jesus when, when he comes. This is, this is who the king is. Now, what's surprising about that is when you think of a king coming, typically we think of, I'm here. It's pomp, right? Give me the accolades, because that's how we do it. 
But you have this unique theme in the book of Mark that's very secretive. So you'll watch, as you saw it, uh, one of the passages that Shar read. She, he first casts out a demon. The demon is proclaiming him as the son of God. And he says, no, don't tell anybody. And you just have this over and over through the first eight chapters especially. Don't tell anyone. Shh. Now, that could be because simply he didn't want, it wasn't his time, and that's probably part of it for sure, because he had a mission. It wasn't time for his crucifixion yet. But also, in very well, as you get later themes in the book, where the, the apostles are always thinking about, like, who's the greatest among us? And we're better than that group. As Jesus is demonstrating, that's not the way of this king. This king is not about the fanfare. This, this king is not just coming to earn a big crowd. At one point, they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. And he says, oh, great, let's go over to that town then. Because I came here to preach to them also. Jesus is not about the fanfare. Now, then when you watch is you see the disciples. Uh, after you've, you've started to hear a chorus of people proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. First Mark says it. Then God the Father says it. Then the demons say it. Twice the demons say Jesus is the Son of God. And you know who never says it? The disciples. In fact, what the disciples are, they can't figure this guy out. I mean, on one level, they did leave everything, right? But then they're standing in the boat, and they're terrified of the storm, the wind and the waves. Jesus stands up. He speaks to the wind and the waves. They stop. And what, is, what happens to them? It says, they say, who is this? And they were afraid. They were more afraid of this man in the boat than they were of the waves. And they can't figure this out. Then he, he does these multiplication of bread twice. And after both of them, it says that they did not understand because their hearts were hard. Just they, they can't figure him out. So Mark has this theme. You're tracing the disciples as they try to figure out who exactly is this man. I almost had an accent there. It was like English. Who is that man? <laughs> All right, now, now he makes a shift. At the end of the first section, the identity, we're, we're told that they don't understand. Jesus confronts them. Do you not yet perceive? Do you not understand? Have your hearts been hardened? Then the next section starts with a miracle. And it's a two-step miracle. And this same section ends with a miracle, which is also the, both of them are a healing of a blind man. Now, these are instructive. Again, we have a Mark and sandwich here on the whole section. The first one is it, it, a two-step miracle. Why does he do that? I mean... Jesus doesn't need to do the miracle twice for it to work, right? Because Jesus has authority over the blind. He can do it once, and he shows us in Bart Bartimaeus. So that's not the issue. It's instructive. It's, it's, it's Mark's way of saying, okay, we're halfway through the book. The disciples are starting to understand who Jesus is, his identity, but they don't understand his actual mission and the way of the kingdom. So they're, they're, they're partially getting it. That's the, that's the two-step miracle. It's... So I, I couldn't find a better picture, so it's a guy kind of like going, he can kind of see through his eyes, or through his hands, but he can't see clearly. They're still trying to figure this out. And then by the end of the section, it's like, okay, now, now they're, starting to, they're starting to get it better. Because they encounter, okay, it's like, okay, Jesus is the king. Okay, maybe he's keeping it secret a little bit. Okay, I, I get that. There's massive authority. But then he starts this teaching about servanthood. 
And you watch in this section about the way section, about the way of the king, and the disciples are twice arguing about who's greatest among us. Hey, we want the best seats in the kingdom. And Jesus keeps confronting them and saying, no, okay, you guys, you don't get it. The way of this kingdom is different. The world, the leaders there, they lord it over people, not, not you. It shall not be that way with you. If you want to be great, which you should pursue greatness, do you want to, you want to know how you pursue greatness? I want you to serve other people and be their slave. And that just sort of like smacks the disciples. What? You're like, you're the God of the universe. And you're going you're gonna to serve others? Or like, and that, that's us too? Shouldn't this put, put us in position? Shouldn't following the king like give us like royalty in, on earth? And she says, no, no, no. You shall be slaves of all. That's true greatness. And then there's the second theme that really highlight, gets highlighted in this uh, section is the suffering of Christ. So if, if this section opens after that uh, two-step miracle, Jesus then has this conversation with the disciples, and he says, who do people say that I am? And if you remember that section, Peter then finally says, oh, you are the Christ. And then Jesus immediately says, for the first time in the book, he says, well, I'm, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, and there I'm going to suffer. They're going to mock me and beat me and crucify me, and on the third day I'll rise from the dead. And you know what Peter does right after that? The text in Mark says he took Jesus aside and rebuked him. I mean, think of that. The apostle Peter rebuking Jesus because Jesus says that he's the king, the sovereign God, and he's going to go suffer and die. And Peter says, no, no, no you will not, mister. And it's, they, they don't get it. They don't get the way of the king. And this just happens again and again. So this section all of a sudden like ramps up. Jesus continuously saying that he's going to suffer and die. And the disciples they just don't get the saying. They don't get it. It doesn't make sense that that's the way of the king. They don't grasp it. Uh, they're starting to understand the identity, but not the way. And then we make a shift. We, get to, we finally get to Jerusalem in chapter 11 then. And there we just watch it unfold. Now he's going to inaugurate his kingdom. Right away in chapter 11, he comes in, he goes to the temple, and he preaches about righteousness and judgment that is coming. Because at the beginning of the book, we're told that he's coming to cleanse his temple. So he comes, he proclaims true righteousness, true judgment that he's bringing, and then we watch it unravel. You would think like, oh, here, here it goes. This is going to be good. He's going to destroy all the religious leaders. This is going to be amazing. But it turns out to be a little bit different. He ends up being criticized, and you watch this long, uh, where they just person, uh, gr different group after different group comes and tries to trap him, uh, and yet he continues to overcome them. Then he's betrayed by his closest, one of his closest friends. Then he's denied by his whole uh, group, his closest buddies who uh, deny him in the, the time of need. Then he's beaten, and then he is crucified. And then, of course, then he's raised from the dead. Now, you would think that at the end of the book then, it's like, okay, that, that unfolded a little bit differently. He was crucified, but then he raised from the dead. Like, this is really great. And Mark, in particular, ends the book a, a little bit different. Uh, it, we'll get to this when we get to the end of the book. Uh, assuming that the end of the book actually ends in chapter 8, or chapter 16, verse 8, um, because the earliest manuscripts end there. 
Uh, there's reason to think why, why later they would come and add more. Because you sort of like, at the end of the book, if you go to it, just so you see it, uh, beginning in verse uh, 7, the, the, the women go to the tomb, uh, they're met with an angel, and the angel tells him in verse 7, but go and tell your, his disciples, go tell Jesus' disciples, and go tell Peter that Jesus is going before you to Galilee. There you're going to see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. The end. It's sort of like, what? Well, then what? And it's Mark's rhetorical way of now, it's putting it on the audience. Because you have to now do some work. You go, okay, so, well, what'd they do? Well, I'm sitting here. I mean, we're sitting here in Milwaukee. It's somehow it's traveled there. So they obviously told somehow. Because as you keep following the story, you know that they're, they're filled with the Spirit of God and they're empowered to go on mission and take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So it's, it's made it my way. But then it's Mark's way of saying, now what about you? What are you going... I've told you about the true Jesus. The one who has sovereign authority, who calls you into his kingdom, and yet calls you to go live a life as he did, a life of servanthood and suffering for the cause of the gospel. What will you do with it? And it's Mark's way of turning it back to the audience. Other authors do this. The book of Jonah does that. It ends with a question as a way of kind of turning it back on the audience. All right, well, there you have the kind of just... Our, uh, the argument, I would sum that up as Jesus, very simply, this is basically what we've titled the series. Uh, Jesus, Paul is introducing Jesus as the unexpected king, the son of God, right? This king being son of God. The reason why unexpected is there is because the way he follows the disciples, they do not understand it. They expected Jesus to come and just clean house, set up a government on earth. And he comes in in such an unexpected way that took them off guard. And it, as a way of saying, Mark saying to the audience, this is the true Jesus. Don't settle for anything less. You don't want a Jesus that your heart tries to mold yourself. You want this Jesus. This is the one who comes and suffers, serves, and dies for your soul. And you should follow him into that. As far as the aim, though, what does he want to do with that? Uh, I, I would put it this way. He, he wants to comfort those who need comforting in the church. Some need to be comforted with this message of the true Jesus, and some need to be confronted with it. But he's inviting the church to embrace the true Jesus. So you might almost think of, of, of this idea of Mark putting this message of the unexpected king on a billboard or on, on a little reminder card for you. Say, this is the true Jesus. When you're, when you're hurting, when you feel like uh, you have no place on earth where you're accepted, where, where you feel like you're abandoned by family members because you're trusting in Jesus or wanting to follow his call in your life, and they're, they're mocking you or they're saying, we don't really, we don't really agree with that, and they, they kind of make fun of you, or you're being mistreated, or maybe you're being slandered. Maybe you're... Uh, being disliked because of following Jesus. It's at this point that we need the true Jesus. For Jesus to say, you know what? I know, that, I know that same experience too. You know one of the most comforting things when life is hard is when someone comes along and says something like, man, I know someone that went through the same thing. 
where I did this. I felt that same thing. And this is Jesus' way of giving us this gospel and saying, man, I know exactly where you are, brother or sister. I know what it feels like to be abandoned. Come underneath my wing. I'm the good shepherd. I bring you close. I feel it too. I haven't forgotten you. God hasn't somehow had his hands tied behind his back and doesn't know what to do. This is the way of the king, and this is the way of the kingdom. I suspect there's some in here who experience some of that. Uh, probably for many of us here, like living in our culture, uh, we might need more confronting from the book. Right? We find it easy to find comfort or pursue the things of the world. We're not, we're not uh, mistreated as much as other cultures. Certainly, people are. Uh, for believing the gospel, but we have it pretty safe and comfortable. That's not bad. It's the problem is if that's what we pursue and we want to try to keep the true Jesus aside. And so maybe you're here who you had opportunity to share Jesus in the last several weeks and you knew it. And you intentionally kept quiet because you were afraid of what that person, how they would respond to you. And you want to keep the peace, you want to keep the friendship, and so you kept quiet. Maybe Mark, through this book, would say, that's not the true Jesus we follow. We, sh we should be willing to take that sort of suffering. Or may maybe you've been pursuing safety in career. Having, having it cushy. And I think Mark would have you, us to say, is, is that the true way of Jesus? Again, safety is not wrong, but if we're intentionally not pursuing the kingdom, or the way of the king, so that we can be safe, Mark might want to challenge us on that. So I don't know, I don't know what God would do through the book of Mark. Perhaps he would call us to pursue deeper ways of laying down our reputation. Right? Be willing to be mocked or thought or not, not thought well of. Perhaps he would be calling us to uh, seek less, less self-promotion, like the disciples. Perhaps it would be to pursue more patience, laying down your life, or perhaps more slave-like mentality in the sense of I'm going to serve these people, pursue what they like, rather than my own preferences. The reality is, I think, if, if we are to do that, it's a scary place. Uh, but Mark would invite us and say, "This come follow the true Jesus. This is a place of joy, the place of freedom. Not living for yourself, but living for the king. And experience true, true freedom. And I would invite you to pray, us all, all to pray as we go through it as a church. God, where we, are comf where we need comforting because we're hurting, where we need comforting from the true king, give us that comforting. God, where we are comfortable and we are, we are needing to be confronted by the true king, confront us. Change us. Give us the grace we need to turn. Because that's what we want to do. And with that, we will turn towards the, the Lord's Supper. And next week, we'll begin in chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 3, if you want to read ahead. Uh, the Lord's table is for all who worship Jesus as the true king. It's not about perfection, but about direction. You're, you're here and you say, I, I've repented in my, of my sins. I trust in Jesus alone for being made right with God. I'm not doing it perfectly but I want to in faith, and I, re 
I have a repentant walk. And then the table's open for you. Um, if you're here this morning and you don't worship Jesus as the true king, then we ask that you not partake of the elements. If you want to come grab the elements, return to your seats, and then we'll partake together. Brothers and sisters, as we partake of the bread, let's be reminded that we worship the Lord who knows our pain. He was the one whose body was broken on your behalf. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If we're honest, many of us are uh, afraid to enter into the call, to be willing to suffer and serve for the cause of the king. And yet we don't want to just pull up our bootstraps and just keep trying. We want to look to the king. The Lord Jesus is the one who suffered for those who are afraid to actually follow him. In his suffering, he paid for all of your sins. You are totally cleansed and free. And he invites us in to follow him. He will empower us. That which he commands of us, he will empower us to fulfill. Because he inaugurated the new covenant that empowers us by the Holy Spirit and new hearts. For the Lord Jesus, in the same way, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.